Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. If you are using the church Bible before you this day, you are looking for page 853. All four of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give careful accounts of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, adds his own eyewitness account. And he reminds us that the Lord Jesus even appeared to 500 after he was raised. And the apostles tell us in Acts that our Savior dwelt among them for 40 days, teaching them before he ascended to his throne on high in your human nature. So this message this morning will have several references within it to these other accounts to help us indeed see a little more than just that which Mark gives us, though our reading is from Mark's gospel. Let us pray now. Our God and Father, upon this occasion of the reading of your word and the preaching of it, we come before you to ask for help. Father, we would pray that it would be no uncertain sound in us or from your servant. We pray, Lord, that indeed we would recognize the authority of the master in his word and that we would be greatly blessed for having heard it, that we would believe it and having believed it, that we would reform our lives by it and that we would, Father, indeed go forth in the strength of it for the praise and for the honor of your name, both in this age and in the age to come. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would come and visit us, our sons and our daughters, in this hour. Come and visit our young and our old. Grant us all, Lord, to be like Mary, who sat at the Master's feet and was pleased to be there and to hear that which he said. Oh, Lord, make us be settled both in our bodies and in our spirit. Keep us from the temptation to ponder the things we must do that are not of this hearing. Oh, Lord, let this be the thing we must do, we pray. Hear us now in this prayer, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. So the place where they laid see the place where they laid him. <coughs> but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, 
just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. In the upper room, while they ate the Last Supper, just hours before he was arrested, Jesus spoke to his disciples of a great sorrow that was falling upon them like a heavy rain, like the thickest of fogs. He told them, like he had done many times before, what was going on inside of them. Sorrow has filled your heart, he said. John 16, 6. Their hearts were flooding with despair because Jesus had just announced he was going away. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. John 16, 16. But these words were no comfort to the disciples. They could not understand them. Jesus continued, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. John 16, 20. Then, in his next words, Jesus made things as simple as possible for them. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Our Lord was speaking of the labor pains of his death, which was just hours away. It would be the cause of their greatest sorrow. But he was also speaking of the birth of his own resurrection, which was just days away. It would be the cause of a joy that would never, ever be taken from them. Because a risen Savior, who had not been defeated by sin, or by death, or by the devil, such a Savior can never disappoint those who put all their hopes in him. Their joy will not die because he, the risen Christ, cannot die. Now, it helps us immensely, beloved, immensely to hear Jesus speak of these two experiences of the human heart, sorrow and joy. Many do not understand true sorrow, nor do many understand true joy. So they end up looking in all the wrong places for both. All they can imagine about sorrow and joy dwells within this earthly horizon, not beyond it. The only sorrows many know and many dread are the loss of created things. Their health, their family, their plans for tomorrow. And the only joys they desire are the passing delights of this imminent frame, this present moment. To be liked by certain people. To buy certain consumer products. To act out their political will. 
to see their offspring happy in this life. But as Jesus is walking in the final hours to the cross, he tells his disciples they are going to experience the greatest sorrow a human heart can experience. But it would give way to the greatest joy. What is this sorrow? Well, two of his disciples, while walking the road to Emmaus on Sunday morning, thinking Jesus was still dead, they put this greatest sorrow in their own mouths, in their own words. These two disciples said to a stranger who had been walking beside them, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Luke 24, 21. Beloved, this is the greatest sorrow. That he who had swelled the heart with hopes of redemption was not who he appeared to be. His death shattered their hope that Jesus was the power of God for salvation. His death said, we are still in our sins. We are still subject to the devil, still under the reign of death, still defenseless before evil, still waiting for God's favor, still uncertain about where the world is going and how it will end. This is the true and great sorrow of human experience, to be without hope and to be without God in the world. Beloved, do not be deceived by lesser sorrows. Do not be deceived. This is the great sorrow. This is the sorrow that Jesus is most tender toward. Why he speaks so frequently of it in John 16. Now there was something else those two disciples told the stranger on the road to Emmaus. They told the stranger about some of the women in their company. They said these women were at the tomb of Jesus early that very morning. And these women had come saying that angels had told them Jesus was alive. But when the disciples went to check it out, they did not see him. In fact, most of the, the disciples did not believe the women. Their words seemed to the disciples to be just an idle tale, as they said. Luke 24, 11. And that's why these two disciples were even walking away from Jerusalem. And it was right then when they spoke of the women. Right then. Right after they said that about the women, that the stranger interrupted them and rebuked them. O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Luke 24, 25. The stranger was the Lord Jesus Christ. The stranger begins to teach these two disciples on the road to Emmaus about the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. And there was something familiar about his teaching to them. And then later at the dinner table that night, there was something familiar about his face to them. It was Jesus. And their sorrow turned into joy. And he vanished from their midst. 
But that joy, no one has ever taken it away from them. And what about those women? Well, it is remarkable that all four of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four carefully report in their account of our Lord's resurrection how it was the women who were the first messengers of Christ's victory over death. In the 21st century West, you do not know how great of a scandal this was. As Matthew Henry put it, the women were the apostles to the apostles. I didn't say that. Matthew Henry did. Good old Matthew Henry, a Presbyterian, older in time than any of us. He said that not in a way to overturn the offices in God's kingdom, but in a way to magnify the impartiality of the grace of this king. That he would make women on the lowest rung of society, the last to be the first in announcing his resurrection. Each evangelist records how the women had this prominent place in the first hours of that Sunday morning. It is as if these men were writing out their repentance of their earlier foolishness and their slowness to believe. Now before us this morning, you heard it, we have Mark's account of the women at the tomb. And what we want to see briefly is how the women were indeed the first ones brought out of the great sorrow into the great joy. We want to be built up by the, the zeal that Christ has to give all believers what he has first given to these women. We get to see great sorrow being crushed by great joy. And by this we are to be renewed by that which belongs to all of us sinners because Christ is risen. Now, who were these women? Mark gives us some of their names. Mary Magdalene. She was the woman from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Luke 8, 3. Some of you have had more demons cast out of you. And you understand the great joy that Mary had in the earthly sojourn of our Savior. That's who Mary Magdalene was. Then there was Mary, the mother of James. She was there, Mark tells us. Now, there were two men named James among the disciples. James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. This, this Mary, mentioned in Mark 16.1, is the wife of Alphaeus. Mark also mentions Salome. Now, she may have been the wife of Zebedee, the mother of the other James, or she may have been a half-sister of our Lord Jesus. That's a tough one. But at least these three women are at the tomb. And from other records, probably another, Joanna. Now, there are two other important things we know about these women. First, they were part of a band of women who followed our Lord Jesus Christ throughout his public ministry. They were not numbered among the 12 disciples, but they were disciples, broadly considered. In the previous chapter, Mark 15, 41, we learn that these women followed Jesus, ministered to Jesus, came up to Jerusalem with Jesus in his entourage when he left Galilee. 
Luke 8 tells us some of these women were the primary financial supporters of our Lord's ministry. This is how they could afford to buy these spices. Now, the second thing we know about these women is that they did not go and hide when our Savior was being crucified. They stayed nearby, Mark 15, 40. The men, likely high targets to the local authorities, the male disciples scattered in fear. Even your favorite disciples, they fled. But the devout women remained and they watched. And not only that, Matthew 27 tells us that they followed Joseph of Arimathea when he took the Lord's body down from the tree and wrapped it and brought it to his own new tomb in a nearby garden. The women followed him. And they sat across from the tomb and watched Joseph bury the Lord. This is how they knew where they were going as the sun rose on Sunday morning. Now look at the great sorrow of these women. We can see it quite simply in the fact that they are going to the tomb. They are going to the place of the dead. One of the angels, according to Luke 24, says to these women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Beloved, this is the saddest thing. The women woke early that morning in the grip of a reality that death was the true Lord over the race of men. That is the saddest thing in the soul of man. Many, many people are waking up this very morning in the grip of this very same reality that death is the true Lord over the race of men. For it is death who defeats everyone they've ever known, and they wait upon their own defeat. That is the saddest thing. All of their experience in this world of sin has trained men in this reality. Death has dominion. Death is an iron jaw that devours but does not open. Everybody has been trained discipled in this reality, these women were under this same training. Jesus had said he would be killed and on the third day be raised. He said this often, but it was too wonderful for people long discipled in death to believe it. These women did not believe it. That is why on the third day, they are bringing spices to the tomb. They are going to continue their love of Jesus, even though they have no expectation that he will live again. They will anoint him for death. Let us not overlook how deeply we have been discipled in this dogma of death ourselves. Hebrews 2.15 says, The devil, through fear of death, keeps the human race subject to lifelong slavery. Meaning men and women are slaves because of the fear of death. Chasing all kinds of evil to numb themselves against the death they know is coming upon them. To numb themselves to the presence and power of sin, which has earned them the wages of death. 
Now, these women at the tomb had some of that fear of death working inside them, but they also had true faith in God. They knew there would be a day of resurrection at the end of history, at the end of the age. They knew this. In John 11, Martha, speaking to Jesus about her brother Lazarus, said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Followers of Jesus Christ believed in a last day's resurrection. This is why the women honored the body of Jesus and did not burn it or stay far from it. But they did not yet believe that Jesus is the resurrection. That Jesus himself is the life that swallows up all death because he has condemned sin in his flesh on the cursed tree. They did not yet believe that. They did not yet believe that the age to come was about to pierce into this present evil age and that two ages would suddenly overlap. And you would see this overlap wherever the life and power of the risen Christ dwells within men and women who now boldly suffer for his cause, boldly forsake the world, boldly resist the devil, boldly endure in faith and endure in love to him. You would see the overlap of the two ages, the age of the dead and the age of the living. Is that power in you, beloved? The women did not yet believe this. They were still under the great sorrow. They believed they were still in the old world, the one-age world, where sin and death had no foe, where sin and death has no opponent, where sin and death has no rival. They believed they were in the one-age world, where sinners had no champion, no advocate, no victor. And so they go to the tomb like women have been going to tombs for ages, They go in the grip of a reality that says sin and death are still the great powers of this world. But when they arrive, when they arrive at the garden tomb, something too wonderful to believe has happened. The very large stone that had blocked the entrance had been rolled away. Not so thieves could enter and take away the body. Not so a Jesus who had fainted only could climb out revived. He was dead. He was buried. Romans knew how to kill. Roman soldiers knew when a man was dead. No, the stone was rolled back so a long train of witnesses could enter and see that Jesus was risen indeed. Matthew 28, 2 tells us, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. This angel, appearing as a young man, had on his very person the radiance of the glory of the risen Christ, who he had just been in presence with and had just been sent forth from. And what did the angel say to the women? Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And when they looked, what did they see? You just sang about it a little while ago. 
John, in his account, tells us what they saw. John 20, verse 6, They saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. With the peace and care of a son... Jesus had folded his burial cloths and left his room in good order. He had burst his three days prison and he had left purposefully a little evidence for their eyes until he would appear to them in his own flesh later that day. That little evidence, those folded grave clothes, was all Peter and John needed to see to believe. Not so the two disciples walking away from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. They all would see so much more, but that morning Jesus was already sustaining faith in his little flock with a little folded head napkin. And what then did the angel say to the women? He said, go. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So even the angel is pressing against this fading unbelief of the women, just as he told you. His word is true. You should have believed but we will not prosecute this further. Go. Now, beloved, this command from the angel to the women to go, this early flavor of great commission, we must not forget its context and its condition because its context and its condition gives us the condition and context of the disciples to whom they must go and tell. Not only were the disciples under the great sorrow, they were under the great sin, cowardice. Matthew tells us what had happened to them right after the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. One short sentence at the end of Matthew 27, 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. They had lost their courage. Their faith was shaken. They fell back to loving their lives in this age more than loving Christ. You know that feeling, don't you? You know that struggle, don't you? You know how easy it is for you to become cold towards the zeal of the Lord and start putting your life in this age as your great quest. You know how easy it is, don't you, to begin seeking first the kingdom of John and Fred and Mark and Steve and you instead of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the age to come. You know what was rattling around in the hearts of men who fled. It rattles in your heart. Well, this should encourage you because look what the Lord does for those whom he loves. They, of course, are his love. 
And so hours before it happened, Jesus even foretold them that it would happen. John 16, 32. The hour has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus tells them about their great cowardice the night they have the Last Supper together. Do you see the grace that that is to them? Though I know that you will become cowards tonight, and Peter, oh Peter, you shall deny me thrice before the cock crows. And I know it, and I tell it to you beforehand so that you can see the love on my heart and my countenance that even so I go to the cross for you. I go to the cross not because you will not sin against me, because you do sin against me. And I must keep you, because with sin you cannot be kept. I must condemn your sin in my own flesh. And so he tells them beforehand, and then what he foretells comes to pass. They all fled. What does this have to do with what the angel orders the women to do? Well, instead of having a message of vengeance for them, instead of having a message of coldness toward the disciples, instead of having a message of disdain for those who have abandoned him, he never brings it up. Jesus sends a message of peace. He gave himself over to death for their sins. Even their sins of cowardice on that darkest of weekends, even Peter's great sin of a threefold denial, Jesus will leave not a single one of his elect church out of his deed, out of his testament and final will. He leaves not one. He has an excessive willingness to pardon humble sinners. How excessive is his zeal for them, to be with them, to show himself to them, to not speak of their sins, to not take up their cowardice like a stone and hang it on their neck the next moment they're in front of him? How zealous is he to give them his love and show them that there is nothing between them? I'll tell you how zealous he is by the words of another pastor. 1,700 years ago, John Chrysostom preached a sermon known as the Paschal Homily. Here is an excerpt. Here is the grace of the risen Savior for the sinners who are cowards. Is there anyone here who is a devout lover of God? Let them enjoy this beautiful, bright festival. Is there anyone who is a grateful servant? Let them rejoice and enter into the joy of their Lord. Are there any now weary with fasting? Let them now receive their wages. If they have toiled from the first hour, let them receive their due reward. If they have come after the third hour, let him with gratitude join in the feast. And he that arrived after the sixth hour, let him not doubt, for he shall have sustained no loss. And if they have delayed until the ninth hour, let him not hesitate, but let him come too. And he who arrived only at the eleventh hour, let him not be afraid by reason of his delay. For the Lord is gracious and receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him who comes at the eleventh hour as well as to him who toiled from the first. To this one he gives 
and upon another he bestows. He accepts the work as he greets the endeavor, the deed he honors, and the intention he commends. Let us all enter into the joy of the Lord. First and last alike, receive your reward. Rich and poor, rejoice together. Sober and slothful, celebrate the day. You that have kept the fast and you that have not. This is the bounty of the last will and testament of Christ the King to all who have faith in him. And so Mark 16, 8 The women go. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, don't be discouraged by that. The women discharged their duty, even so. Matthew, in his gospel, says they departed with fear and great joy. They did not depart with great fear and joy. They departed with fear and great joy. Great joy, not great fear, which means resurrection joy was choking their fear to death. And it has prevailed. They did finally go, and they met the disciples in their cowardice and reported what they had been told to report. Well, even though one of them Mary Magdalene could not get out of the garden until she met the Lord. You can read about that in the Gospel of John. Several several hours later, several hours later, after the two disciples on the road to Emmaus met the stranger and he was revealed to be Jesus Christ, several hours later, after these women met the angel, several hours later, Luke tells us, that night, Jesus makes his first appearance in the flesh to them all. They were back in Jerusalem, the disciples. They had heard from the women. They were pondering how much of an idle tale it was. The two disciples from Emmaus had turned around and run back, and they are there. There's such a hubbub. The door is locked for fear of the Jews. And Luke 24, 36 says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Isn't that how he greeted you today? Did he not stand among you this morning? and say grace and peace to you? Beloved, though you killed him with your sin, he has greeted you in the peace of the gospel again. He does not keep record of your wrongs. He has indeed done better. He has answered for them. I close this morning with a story about another visit to another grave that took place this very morning in the state of Texas. A pastor I know posted this letter this morning while most of you were asleep. He had already gone to the cemetery and he already stood over the headstone of his son, of his dear child. His son, a second class midshipman at the United States Naval Academy highly decorated already with many awards, academically, professionally, 
attending a special university in Chile, died last year on a hike. A life full of promise, a life full of purpose, but not full of more promise and purpose than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This pastor wrote these words this morning, standing over his son's headstone. I weep and grieve and often stare into the distance at nothing, remembering happier days before two swords pierced my soul this last year. The second was his father. But now today I take a deep breath, fill my lungs, and roar in defiance at death. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, for Christ is risen. For now we weep, but not forever. For now we agonize, but not forever. For now we visit cemeteries, but not forever. Because now and always the lungs of Jesus that stopped breathing, the heart of Jesus that stopped beating, the limbs of Jesus that grew cold and gray were flooded with warmth, pulse, and breath. His body twitched, his eyelids shot open, he inhaled the air, a smile formed on his face, and he rose. He rose. He stood, he was, and is alive again. For now, now and always and evermore, Christ is alive, bodily resurrected, victorious over death. For my son Luke, for my father Carson, for me and you and all who are found in Jesus Christ. For now, cemeteries are allowed temporarily to house the bodies of our loved ones, but this is not their final resting place. Far from it. One day, our Lord, make it soon, O Lord. One day, the trumpet shall sound. Gravestones will pop like champagne corks, and the glorified bodies of believers will spring from the earth. A vast army will stand, arrayed in white, with faces uplifted to shout hallelujah to their returning king of kings. For now we wait. We decorate our tears with smiles, season our grief with hope, and anchor our souls in the resurrected flesh of the God who became man, who became dead, who became fully alive again. For you. A blessed resurrection day to all of you who, like me, mock death and applaud life. As limping through as we are, we dance on this day to the new song of a victorious resurrection. That is a father standing this morning at another grave where his child was buried last year. The children of men, many die. Some children don't die until they're 92, but they are the children of somebody. Some don't die until they're 22. Some die when they're two. And some of the children of men even die when they are just two weeks old in the womb. They shall all, who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, rise to his glory. This has already been done in the body of the Savior. And it shall be done for all who are united to him now. Beloved, this is the new age that has pierced the old age of death. And all Christians 
Now live in those two ages, and you can identify somebody under the reign and rule of this second age. They are already filled with resurrection power. They are unashamed of giving obedience to Jesus Christ. They are unashamed of telling their neighbors, I will not do that. It is a sin against my Lord. They are unashamed of enduring in the church of Christ and singing its songs and praying for its funny people. They are unashamed of saying there is only one way on the earth to be reconciled to my God through the blood of his son. They are unashamed. And that is evidence to you that they are already alive to the resurrection power of the age to come. And the day is coming when their whole body shall be like his, seeing him as he is. Let us pray. Gracious God, grant us to believe these things, for there is nothing better to believe than the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.